Good morning. We're going to be in the book of Job again this morning. Uh, we will finish the series up in Job next week, so if you're getting depressed, hold fast. Uh, we're almost done. Um, but really, we're getting to the best part of the book of Job coming up next week. One of the uh, most unique passages in Scripture where God has given this long speech in which he explains to Job how his ways are so much higher uh, and more complex than we could ever get our minds around. And so I'm looking forward to that next week. But I'm also looking forward to a passage that is right before God's speech this week. Um, and we're going to be in Job chapter 36, verses 15 through 21. It's kind of our main scripture. But uh, we're also going to bounce around all throughout Job chapters 32 through 37, in that they all belong to this section of the book of Job, a section that's often overlooked and not really thought about many times when we think about Job, his friends, God. We often leave the individual that takes up this section out. Um, But before we actually get to Elahu, who is the uh, speaker during this section, um, one of our favorite places to go eat, not because the food is necessarily great, even though it's, it's pretty good. It's not, you know, outlandishly amazing, but it's a good place to go and eat, and it's, it's easy, and Corbin really enjoys it, and that is Chili's. We enjoy going to Chili's. We end up there often. Uh, again, it's not this place that we absolutely love, but it's a place that we end up at quite a bit. And one of the reasons why Corbin loves it, besides the fact that they have uh, the root beer or Coke float on the children's menu, which he's a big fan of, uh, but another reason why he enjoys Chili's is that they have, and a lot of restaurants are starting to do this, right? They have this thing when you get there and you sit down, they have this machine on the table, this screen, they call it a Ziosk, uh, and on it there's a lot of video games. You also pay on it on your way out. You can order things off the menu from it. Uh, and there's this one game, <clears throat> there's several games on there, but there's this one that Corbin particularly likes and it's called Spy Mouse. Anybody know anything in the world of what I'm talking about? Okay, Jared's got me on this one. Um, Spy Mouse is a game in which you play as a mouse, and it's your job to go through each level and get the cheese before the cats see you, okay? Basic premise that all of us can kind of understand. And the cats are like the guards. They go around, and if they see you, they come and get you, and you have to run away from them as by dragging your finger across the screen as the mouse, now, what makes the game beatable is that the, the, the cats travel in a predictable pattern. They always go the same direction, and they go back, they stop at some places and take a nap or something, it seems like. But everything that they do is predictable. It travels in a certain pattern. And as I was thinking about that game, I thought about how awesome would it be if life were that predictable? If things moved in a pattern that always worked itself out the same way, to where when we encountered a challenge or a time of suffering, we could be like that mouse and we could just say, if I just hang out right here, I know exactly what's going to happen and when I need to move and what I need to do in order to avoid what I already know is coming. Now, we know that life is not that predictable. We know that life, while it certainly has its patterns, we usually only see them looking backwards. That it's not something you can see as a perfect pattern that life happens the same way every single time. No relationship happens the same way every single time. Even those of you who have been in a relationship with someone for decades, you know that every day they're a new person. Every day they're a little bit different. And all of us react and live in unpredictable patterns, if a pattern is even there. And so should we expect God 
to be any less or any more? Should we expect God to be any more predictable than all of this? Sometimes we, we would like to think this, and we would set it up this way, and we do this when we talk about the book of Job, and it's actually what Job's three friends do, is they set God up as predictable. In their mind, God always operates in one fashion. And in Job's three friends that we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, the way that they think that God always operates is that he always punishes the evildoer with some sort of suffering. And the only reason why Job is suffering is because he has sinned before all of this started, before we pick up in the book of Job in chapter 1, he sinned and did something so egregious that it garnered this response from God. That's the only way, that's the predictable way that God works according to Job's three friends. But Job's three friends aren't the only ones that fall into that narrative. I would argue that Job even kind of falls into that narrative by the way that he responds to God, by the things that he says to God and about God. Job, as we read through the book of Job, becomes angry, becomes bitter even in what God is allowing to happen, questioning God's judgment, questioning God's justice and goodness. It definitely seems that way as we read last week when he essentially shakes his fist in the air and says, here I am God. I have signed my testimony. I'm innocent. Come and show me otherwise. God, come and tell me what needs to be told. Come and finally show up because I'm tired of waiting on you. Job thinks he has made a case that can't be ignored by God and now he waits for God's reply. But there's one more person to speak before God takes the stage. And his name is Elihu. And again, we see his speech in Job 32-37. through 37, And we're going to look at parts of that this morning. The takeaway that I want you to leave with is that we don't have to understand God's ways to trust them. We don't have to understand God's ways to trust them. None of the human characters in the book of Job, even Elihu that we're about to read, get God perfectly right. None of them seem to have a always correct interpretation of who God is and what he is doing. Certainly the three friends being the most wrong among them. But Elihu seems to give us a little bit of a different take on what is going on and maybe a more appropriate way to look at God and when we suffer under, uh, under the judgment, not under the judgment, but when we suffer uh, under uh, the sovereignty of a God who is just and good, what do we do with that? Elihu seems to have a different answer. Now again, Elihu shows up in Job chapter 32. He's been quiet this whole time. Like, you wouldn't have known he was there until you get to chapter 32. If you're reading this for the first time, he shows up as a brand new character, kind of surprising that he's even there. But evidently, he's been sitting in the background, and he finally speaks up. You might wonder why in the world he speaks up at this point. He he goes ahead and tells us, evidently he's much younger than Job and younger than Job's three friends. And he says that since he is younger, he has remained quiet out of deference or out of respect towards them. But now he cannot be quiet any longer. And he says those words, uh, and I just want to show you the passion with which he says them. In Job chapter 32, verses 17 through 20, Elihu showing that he can no longer be quiet. 
He says, I, will, I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words, and the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. So Elihu starts by saying, basically, I've listened to everything that's been said by you, Job, and by you, Job's three friends, and I can't sit back and be quiet any longer. He describes his belly as if it were a new wineskin that didn't have any venting. It's about to burst. He can't hold in this truth any longer. He must speak up on God's behalf. Now, As we look at the book as a whole, and we wonder why Elihu needs to speak right here, there's one important reason that isn't explicitly mentioned in the scripture, but is definitely there if you read between the lines, and that is that there needed to be a break between Job's challenge to God to finally respond and God actually responding. If it had been Job saying, God, here I am, I sign my affidavit, I sign my testimony, now I'm waiting for you to respond, and then the next thing we know, God is responding, it might have seemed as if Job had God at his beck and call. As if Job could respond with anger and have God answer immediately. No, God is going to answer on God's schedule, so it is a good thing that there is this break where Elihu comes up with a need to speak. In Job chapter 33, verses 6 through 7, we see that Elihu, while he definitely has his own pride, while he definitely seems to believe that he has something important to say and that he needs to speak up, he also comes with a sense of humility that the other three didn't have. Job 33, 6 and 7. Behold, I'm toward God as you are, speaking to Job. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay, Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Elihu did not view himself as a superior to Job. He did not speak down to Job as the other other three friends did. Though he does have a bold point to make and boldly points out Job's errors, he does not come with the same sense of pride that the others come with. But he has a goal, a goal that the other three didn't have. And he begins to articulate that in chapter 33, verses 29 and 30. He says these words, Behold, God does all things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of fire. Elihu is out to show that not only is God just, not only is God righteous, but God is good as we started out with this series. Unlike the three others, the three other friends, Elihu contends that God only does what God does to redeem humanity. That's what he says in that passage. God does these things twice, three times even for a man in order to save him from the pit, to redeem him from something that is in front of him. God's goal, according to Elihu, is always to redeem humanity. And that is in spite of the fact that, a fact that Elihu knows that God is not in need of us. He says a couple of different things in chapter 34 and 35. In 34 verses 14 and 15, Elihu points out that God could, if he wanted to, destroy us in an instant when he says these words, If he should set, he being God, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish and man would return to dust. 
showing God's sovereignty, that God, if he would just take a deep breath, could destroy us in an instant. Job chapter 35, 6 and 7, he goes on to show how God does not necessarily need us. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? In other words, in other words, it does not make God better if we are righteous because God is perfect. You can't improve upon perfection. God is not in need of our righteousness. Now, he desires it from us for reasons that are good for us, but God himself is not in need of anything. Therefore, God's life is not somehow made better if we are obedient or if we are righteous. Ours is, but not God's, because we can't improve upon God's perfection. Nor does it worsen anything for God if we are unrighteous. Nor does it make God any lesser if we are disobedient. God is beyond us. He is not in need of us. He could destroy us in an instant. Yet, as Elihu points out to Job, he still does all of the things that he does for our good. To bring us to redemption. And then kind of a summary statement to it all. In Job chapter 37, verses 11 through 13, Elihu puts it this way. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, and the clouds scatter his lightning They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. That last verse, one more time, because it's important to understand the whole testimony of the book of Job. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. God is the source of all. He allows everything that comes to pass to happen. It does not happen without his approval. It does not happen without his action. And Job says that he does so for a reason. That God has his reasons in every single circumstance. Sometimes, as Elihu points out, it's for correction. It is, as the friends have been saying, that sometimes God does punish the wicked, punish the disobedient, so that they would turn from their ways. It's not the only place in Scripture where we see that God disciplines those whom he loves. He allows certain things to happen to his people, to his followers, when they step out of line in order to correct them, in order to redeem them. We know from the whole testimony of Scripture that this is true. Sometimes he allows it to happen for his land, Elihu says, to care for his creation. It's not necessarily centered on humanity's benefit. Now, we like to center everything on us, but sometimes God works in such a way where we're not the center of it all. (gasps) Can you imagine that we're not the center of everything? So sometimes some things might happen and we might wonder, what effect does this have on me when the effect that it has on us is not the central part of what is happening? And then he does things for love, Elihu says. Whether it's for correction or for his land or for love, God does these things. God acts for love, self-explanatory, that God responds out of the goodness that is inherent within him in order to extend something to us that we neither deserve nor actually does him any good rather than just the opportunity to give us that love. And the scripture that we're going to kind of camp out on the rest of the time is an example of something that God might do. This good 
and just God might do for us through our suffering. Again, Job chapter 36, verses 15 through 21. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction, and he opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction, Elihu says. Elihu is not claiming that God always behaves in this manner. That God always operates this exact same way in every single circumstance in order to bring about the redemption of people. That's kind of the whole point of what I'm talking about this morning. Even if we don't understand God's ways, we can trust God's ways. And God does not always operate in the predictable patterns that we think he should operate in. God does not fit in a box that we would like for him to fit into. He doesn't always do what we would want him to do. Has anybody else ever been there at that moment in your life or moments in your life where you thought to yourself, God, I'm doing these things. This is what should happen in response. I have this box, or we don't, we don't see it that way, but we do have this box, or I have this understanding, God, of who you are, and I've, and I've read your scripture, and I heard these truths from Sunday school from the time I was a little boy until now, and it just seems like, God, that this should be predictable. When I do this, you do this. That's the way it should go, God. And we get frustrated when God does something else, when he operates outside of the way that we think he should operate. But one of the things that he can do, doesn't always, one of the things that he can do, Elihu says, is to deliver the afflicted by their affliction. God can use our suffering for good, for our good. Now, I know this is where we get into the difficulty. Because it's easy and it's comfortable, and it's easy and comfortable for me too. It's easy and comfortable for us to read the book of Job and to take the main thrust that God does not always act against those who sin with that sort of punishment. That just because you're suffering doesn't mean that God is punishing you. Now, that's a truth from the book of Job. And it's easy and it's comfortable for me to take that one truth and then to run away from the rest of it. To leave the rest of it behind. Because I enjoy that truth. Because I can rest comfortably in that truth. That just because things are going badly for me doesn't mean God is punishing me. But there are other truths there as well. And one of those is that God can use our suffering for our good. Again, this testimony echoes throughout Scripture. God disciplines those whom he loves. We see from the book of of James that we should rejoice in suffering because of what, re, re, what suffering eventually produces within us, that God can use those things for our good. Paul says it several times in Scripture that we should, as, as, as uh, Bill mentioned earlier, that we should rejoice when we have the opportunity to participate in the death of Christ, that suffering is something that can bring about our ultimate good. Real-world examples? 
that job that you missed the opportunity to get or that promotion that you didn't receive, the gift that you thought you deserved that you didn't get that job, that maybe it opened up the opportunity for you to do something else, to take another career path or to make another choice and God used that for your ultimate good. There are several other examples like those that God uses for our ultimate good. I have heard stories of, of couples who were longing to have children and, and, and couldn't on their own and decided that they were going to move to adoption. And then the adoption process starts. And then sure enough, what happens? They have their own child all of the sudden. And it is God taking a terrible, horrible, suffering time that nobody would wish upon anyone. That if you have gone through, you know how difficult it is to go with that heartache and wondering why God is allowing this to happen to you, sometimes God can use that for our good, no matter what that suffering might be. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. He opens their ears by their adversity. God can use our suffering to teach us truth. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we can ignore even pleasure but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world that would not hear him otherwise. I know that seems harsh, but ask yourself this question. When are you most likely to seek God's face? When everything is wonderful? The normal days when you're just trying to get from point A to point B to achieve whatever the American dream is? Or are you most likely to seek God's face when you are in pain? I'll be honest. I'm most likely to seek God's face when I'm in pain. Just like I'm most likely to go to the doctor when I'm in pain. Not for the well checkup that everybody says we should be going for, but when I'm in pain, and I mean pain, pain, right? Not when I, hear, when I feel the first coughs start coming. No, when I'm hardly able to breathe from wheezing so bad for whatever it is that I have. It is not until I am in pain that I seek God's face. God can use that megaphone, our adversity. He uses to open our ears so that he might teach us something deeper and more beautiful. Paul recognized that with what he called the thorn in his flesh. He asked God to take it away, 2 Corinthians 12. He asked God to take it away numerous times, and God did not. And so he rejoiced in his weakness because that's where he saw God's strength. And beyond that, you can go read that in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul knew that God was doing that because Paul needed to be humbled. Because Paul had a pride problem, and he needed to be brought down. And so because of that, God allowed this thorn in the flesh to come into his life. Paul learned from his pain. Elihu says to Job, he has allured you out of your distress. Elihu is contending that perhaps God allowed Job to suffer so that he might avoid even deeper or even worse pain and or judgment. Again, borrowing from something else that Elihu says to kind of make this point even clearer. This is verses 16 through 18 in chapter 33. Elihu says this about God. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. 
that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. In other words, Elihu is saying, maybe, Job, what God is doing is that he saw something coming. He saw something that you could not see coming. He saw a decision that he was afraid that you might make. And in order to turn you away from that path, he spoke to you through this suffering. God can use our suffering even to spare us greater suffering. It happens, it's happened a lot lately. Cannon has got really mobile. He's 14, 15 months old. He's walking around. He's even getting to that point where he can kind of run, you know, in, in the toddler sense. It's not really a run, but he's moving faster, walking faster. It's fun to watch. It's fun to just kind of sit back and watch Cheryl chase him around. But it's not as fun when I have to be the one to chase around. One thing that I like to do at home a lot is cook. It's something that I enjoy. And Cannon will often walk into the kitchen. And, and when he does, and he begins to look at the hot plates in the, in the, in the oven uh, and try to reach up on top of the skillet, I just give a spank to the hand, right? Because you don't want him to do that. And you know how children are the first few times you discipline them when they're that young. They look at you like, what is this? What are you doing? I should have free reign to everything. I am a baby. Why should you do this to me? And so he has that look of befuddlement on his face. And then, it, it, you know, it, the, the, the lips turn downward and he has this like, why have you done this to me? Why have you forsaken me? Look upon his face. When in reality, I'm giving him a little bit of pain to spare him much greater pain. God does this for us in the ultimate sense. Sometimes he disciplines us away from certain paths so that our, our life might not fall into complete destruction. I have, have been there. I have had sin in my life that could have been incredibly destructive had not God intervened in a painful moment in my life and allowed me to go through something that seemed pretty destructive at the moment but nowhere near as destructive as sin grown to its full force, which brings about destruction, the word tells us. And again, in the ultimate sense, God does that for us. We suffer in obedience sometimes, out of our desire to be righteous to God. We say no to things that our flesh wants to say yes to. That seems like suffering in this moment, but we know because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the heaven that is coming, we know that this temporary suffering, suffering is nothing to be compared to the eternal glory that awaits us in heaven, as Paul would say in Romans 8. And so he ends his speech towards Job or at least the passage that we're reading this morning in chapter 36, with a warning. Essentially, be careful, Job. You are being tempted to turn your back on God. Satan is still at work. Remember the beginning wager. Satan told God if you would just let me touch him, he would curse you. Job is still being tempted to do that very thing. The way we respond to suffering can make or break our relationship with God. Hear me when I say what I don't mean by that. I'm not saying that your salvation is dependent upon the way you respond to suffering. No, once you have been fully saved by God, you are saved. I'm talking about in this temporal moment, the way that you respond to God can make or break your relationship with him. I have seen it from the eyes of a pastor. 
I have seen people who have responded to suffering by blaming it all on God, by becoming bitter and what's happening to them, wondering out loud why this is happening, questioning God's judgment, questioning God's goodness, and they fall away. Their life deteriorates. Not saying they're not saved, not saying that at all, but in this moment, their relationship with God becomes weaker. When at the same time, I have seen people there suffering with an incredible grace. Better suffering of themselves. I have seen people joyfully smile through cancer treatments. Joyfully smile even though the doctor has told them there's nothing we can do for you except make you comfortable. I have seen people walk alongside those people with a sense of joy that is inexplicable. That I am unable to understand. And somehow in the midst of that all give praise to God. And guess what? Their suffering brought them closer to God. I can't explain it. I don't want it. I don't wish it upon you or your children or anybody that you care for. I don't wish it upon my enemy. But I know that God is capable of using our suffering for reasons that are beyond our ability to understand. And because I trust him, I can trust his ways even when I don't understand them. While our suffering may be mysterious, it is not pointless. God is always at work whether we understand what he is doing or not. We cannot put God in a box. And so Elihu stands kind of on, 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 on opposite sides, both Job and his friends. And look, I don't think he's all the way right either, because I don't think any of the human characters in the book of Job are all the way right. But he gives us a different perspective. A perspective that says to Job's friends, suffering is not always the product of God's judgment. Because as Job pointed out in what we read last week, sometimes the people who are really evil do really well in the world. And so it's not always the case of God's judgment. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's for correction. Sometimes God allows us to be tested so that he might produce something within us. Sometimes God allows us to go through times of suffering so that he might direct our paths away from something else. Sometimes God allows our suffering so that he might teach us something deeper. Some of the wisest people I know are some of the people who have suffered more than I ever want to. God can use those things. While your suffering may be mysterious, it is not pointless. Or at least it doesn't have to be. If you run from God, it will seem that way. But if you stay, if you submit as Job ultimately does, you will see that that suffering was not pointless. We don't have to understand God's ways to trust them. And so if you are suffering this morning, physically, mentally, spiritually, some other way that I can't think of at this moment, search your heart to see if there's anything you need to change. Not because God always acts out of a sense of judgment, but perhaps God is using your suffering for correction. If you have searched your heart and that's not there, move on. Don't stay in the place of guilt. And through prayer, look for God's teaching. Look for God's warning. Look for what God might be trying to say in the storm. You know, one of the coolest things about this portion of the book of Job is what I think, again, it's not stated explicitly, but what I think might be going on behind the scenes. Because in chapter 37, Elihu begins to speak about God's greatness. 
He begins to say some of the things about God that God is about to say about himself. And he talks about how God tells the lightning where it should go. And he uses all of this storm language. And then in chapter 38, God speaks out of the storm, is what it says to Job. Speaks out of the whirlwind. It might say in other places. It just depends on which English translation you're using. But the the, the scene I get in my head is Job questioning God, shaking his fists at God. I demand an answer. While the three friends are sitting there not knowing what to say because they have this limited, boxed view of God that God is not fitting into at the moment. And Elihu, this guy who doesn't have any business saying anything because he's young and stupid compared to the others, stands up and says, I can't take it anymore. I can't sit here while you say these things about God. And there's a boom, a rumble of thunder in the distance. And he begins to extol God's greatness and talk about how God's ways are beyond our ways and that even though you might not see the point that there is a point from God's perspective to all suffering, he tells the lightning where it should go, crackle, the lightning strikes the earth. And the storm begins to grow and grow, showing God's greatness and God's goodness. And just at the point where you think it's about to consume you, where Job thinks he's about to be consumed by his pain and by his suffering, Elihu says, no, Job, it's for your good. God does these things for a man twice, even three times, so that he might redeem him from the pit. God's goal is always redemption. And even when you don't understand it, you can trust it. And just when you think you're about to be consumed, God's voice comes out of the storm, and that's what we're going to see next week. And it is this beautiful, amazing story of who God is, who can consume us in an instant, and who is not in need of us, but who works for our benefit, even through our suffering. So again, if you are suffering this morning, search your heart for a place that might need to be corrected. Listen closely to God at work in the quiet and in the storm and see if if he has something he wants to teach you or a way that he wants to warn you. And even when you don't get it, trust the one who does. I believe eventually you will. Maybe not today, maybe not next year, maybe not even in this lifetime. But you will see that while your suffering is mysterious, it is not pointless. And even when you don't understand... Trust the one who does, because we don't have to understand God's ways to trust them. During our time of invitation this morning, if you are in the midst of suffering of any kind, I invite you into that conversation with God. And if you know anybody else who is, I encourage you to pray for them, to come and speak truth like Elihu did. Maybe not so arrogantly, I think that may be one of his problems but to speak truth and love, to remind people who God really is, that he's for us, that he wants to redeem us, that he has a plan. Let's enter into that time during this time of invitation. If you're suffering, have that conversation with God. If everything is good for you right now, pray that God would lead you to help somebody else in a similar place. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. You move in whatever way God is calling. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you that all of this talk that we do about suffering, God, that we know that you have suffered what we can't so that we might be free from sin and death, so that there might come an end to our pain because of your pain. And God, in the way that you bared our pain through your son, Jesus, God, I pray that you would continue to do that for us today. 
And that, God, if there is anyone here this morning, as you know that there are, that is going through a time of pain and suffering, God, may you first remind them of your love for them. May you first remind them of the testimony of the gospel of Jesus. And then, God, I ask for the difficult time to come where you explain, where you show them, where you teach them something deeper, something hard, something valuable in the midst of that pain. God, we don't always understand it, 